to the end uh, at verse 30. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. He said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. They said, so they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge but he who sent me is true and i declare to the world what i have heard from him they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father so jesus said to them when you have lifted up the son of man then you will know that i am he and that i do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the father taught me and he who sent me is with me he has not left me alone for i always do the things that are pleasing to him as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Well, let us ask God to bless the reading and preaching of his holy word. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We ask that it would be a light to us, that we would be able to see and not be blinded by sin, that the darkness would be overcome by the light of the glory of Jesus Christ For his glory has been shone into our hearts so that we may see and believe. We ask this now as we continue to worship you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if you are, let's say, under the age of 25, uh, when was the last time you sat in a room with perhaps some pagans, and had a good old-fashioned debate about God's existence or about uh, maybe theology, and uh, you, you had it out. Now, you know, up until the last few years, I could say to our church that I don't think many young people be debating theology, but then all of you young people came to our church and you like theology, so I'm, I'm kind of missing a, uh, an, an opportunity to say we don't do that anymore. But when I was a young man, I used to work for my dad in the summers. We'd go down to a, a hotel in Victoria called the Royal Scott. It was a re-roof, very big roof. And at lunchtime, I would go with two friends, Rory and Tyler, uh, characters of 
a level some of you probably will never experience in your life. And uh, one is no longer with us and one not doing so well. But we would spend lunchtime with our lunches and each other. Now that's the first problem. Because what do you do when you are sitting with two friends and all you have is a lunch but no phones? Oh, well you talk. And you reason. And you debate. And you argue. And I can go back in time and remember the arguments and the debates and the Christianity is true, and them countering, and going back and forth. And I actually believe that God used those experiences to help me learn how to reason and talk about theology and be interested. I wasn't even a Christian, and I defended Christianity to my non-Christian friends. What do young men do today, is the question, sitting in a room together. What do young ladies do today, sitting in a room together? They don't talk about theology. They don't talk to each other. How are they going to talk about theology? Hmm. Do you know how long my grandkids' fingers are going to be? Evolution kicks in on the micro level. And a mutation takes place. But the point is, we don't really live in a time where people will sit down and have nothing else to do but discuss matters of life and death. And it's a great sadness, is it not, that some of you have never had a good old-fashioned argument and debate about whether God exists. And you've missed out. Rory and Tyler, we'd also go down to the park with boxing gloves and then Tyler and all threes and beat each other up and do other things, but we also fought with our mouths and we debated. And Jesus is doing precisely that. He is arguing publicly. He is debating matters of life and death. There is a debate going on and people who are not uh, particularly comfortable with arguments think that we ought not to do these things in public. But Jesus did debate in public, sometimes vigorously so, and you will find that there is actually a happy ending in certain respects when it is done well. Now, how do we get to that point where there is, in verse uh, 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. How do we get there? Well, you will notice that if you go back to chapter 7, Uh, Jesus is speaking and there are those who are listening. And notice that as um, things unfold, the officers, verse 45, come to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Now, why didn't they bring him? Well, notice what their answer is. Not because he could command 12 legions of angels and at once they would appear and we would have no chance against him. Not also, well, he hovered above us and performed a miracle and we couldn't grab him. No. We couldn't bring him to you because we were flummoxed by the words of a man where we could say, no one has ever spoke like this man. We have never heard anyone speak like him. That's why we're not bringing him to you. We are floored by what he is saying. Now, you need to think about just for a moment what it's like for the Son of God to come to earth, take on flesh, 
and try to say, well, how am I going to help people on earth? How am I going to help them enjoy the happy life? A life of joy, a life of hope, a life of peace. How am I going to do that? Well, I know what I'll do. I'll come to earth. I will come and say that I will lay down my life for you. You don't have to. I will. In fact, you don't have to do anything. And I'm going to prove that I have the authority to say these things by my signs and wonders. I'm going to feed people. I'm going to heal people. And I'm going to promise you that there is eternal life if you will simply believe in my name. Surely everyone is going to say, now that I can live with. Or maybe not. It doesn't make any sense. Jesus comes offering life, not judgment in the first place. He comes and proves Himself. And He is vindicated by the miracles, but also by the words of His Father at His baptism. There is no good reason not to believe Him, except that so many don't. In fact, not only do they not believe in Him, they reject His message. And the Pharisees are in such staunch opposition towards Christ that they reject the officers, they also talk about the crowd in verse 49. But this crowd does not know that the law is accursed. So they have no time for the crowd. They have no time for the officers. In fact, Nicodemus, who is almost always in a positive light, says, well, shouldn't we try him by our law? And he says, come on now, Nicodemus, we're better than that. Don't you know that no prophet arises from Galilee? Come on, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is out. The crowds are out. The officials are out because these people, what? They are blind. They're in darkness. They can't see who Christ is. It doesn't matter if 10 billion people lined up. They would not see. Now, what does Jesus say to them in chapter 8? Remember the context. The context is it's the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. People uh, go to Jerusalem and the priests come up to the temple and at certain points of the feast and the celebration, they pour water out as a symbolic act from the temple down the temple to show that streams of living water flowing out from the presence of God, that this will bring future blessing and that the streams of living water are really streams of His Spirit that show the Messianic age is upon us. So Jesus speaks about Himself being the source of water. But there's something else that goes on at the Feast of Tabernacles. At nighttime, there are lights that are on display and the temple becomes this radiant place where there's lights and there are men who go around dancing with torches and there's lights and there's celebration. So one thing you are struck by at night are by the amazing lights that are coming from the temple. You're struck by the water from the pool of Soam that's brought up that shows God's blessing, but you're struck by the lights. And it is in that context that Jesus says, I am the light, not of this temple, not of Jerusalem, not of Israel, not of Judah, not of the Middle East. I am the light of the world, the world. Now, this is a very important biblical theological theme as well, because you will remember that in the beginning there was darkness. Darkness, what? Was over the face of the deep. And God doesn't see the darkness and say, it is good. God sees the darkness and His first creating activity is, let there be light. Light. 
and he saw that the light was good. The world was not meant to be a place of darkness. It was a place meant to be a place of light. So when the Israelites are being brought out of Egypt, God is what? He is a light, a pillar of fire to lead them through the darkness. God is identified with the light. The psalmist says in Psalm 27, the Lord is what? The Lord is my light and my salvation. So God is identified with light in Psalm 84 for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. God is a light. So the Israelites understand that light is identified with God because God is light. But we also understand based upon what the Scriptures teach that darkness is a word that is used of those who are living in the realm of sin and misery and hopelessness. So Paul will say to the Ephesians, you were once darkness. You were darkness. Not you just lived in darkness. You once were darkness. He talks about the powers of darkness. So you once were darkness, but there's also powers of darkness. There's a domain of darkness. In fact, hell is described by our Lord Jesus Christ as what? Outer darkness. So you have God who is good. God is a light. He is a sun, a shield. He is salvation because He is light and in Him there is no darkness. But you have a world full of darkness. Full of misery. Full of sin. Suffering. And Darkness comes upon all who do not know God. In fact, Bertrand Russell, the atheist British philosopher, before he dies, said, There is darkness without, and when I die, there will be darkness within. There is no splendor. There is no vastness anywhere. Only triviality for a moment and then nothing. That's his end. Darkness. Darkness within, darkness without. And yet Jesus Christ, well before Bertrand Russell said, I am the light of the world. Now, when he says that, it's a, really a shocking revelation because he is saying something that is not just a sort of nice thing to say. Well, how can I uh, alert people to the fact that I'm a good person? No, he is saying something much more fundamental. He is saying he's the Messiah. Because if you read Isaiah, for example, in chapter 9, verse 2, what do we find but that a great light has shone in the darkness. And as you get to the servant songs, the first servant song in chapter 42, God speaks to the servant and He says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people and what? A light for the nations, plural. A light for the world. Chapter 49 of Isaiah, still another servant song. He basically says the father to the servant, it's too light a thing that you should only raise up the tribes of Israel. It's a too light a thing for such a glorious Savior that you should only save Israel. No, I will make you what? A Savior for the nations? No. I will make you a light 
for the nations. He could have said Savior, but He is a light for the nations that my salvation would reach to the end of the earth. I am the light of the world. Jesus is identifying Himself with the Messiah and they claim He is bearing false witness. Well, on what grounds do they have to say this? Well, they say, you are bearing witness about yourself. You are talking a big game. And Jesus informs them that actually He has every right, if He is who He says He is, to speak directly from His own witness and need nothing else. He is God in the flesh. But He also informs them that he doesn't just speak for himself, that actually his father has been vindicating him and will vindicate him, and that he is from the father, and they don't understand. Now, notice he says in verse 18, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the father who sent me bears witness about me. Because every matter has to be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. He understands their law, as he says their law, even though it's his law. But he says, the Father bears witness about me. The works that I do bear witness about me. And the works he does are done in the power of the Holy Spirit. So he has not only the Father bearing witness, he has the Spirit bearing witness. The Trinity bears witness to God in the flesh. And he basically says to them, well, if you knew me, you would know my Father. But you don't know me, so you don't know who my Father is. Now, what can we account for their spiritual blindness? Well, because they live in darkness, we see Christ basically chastises them. In verse 21, He says, I am going away, and you will seek Me, and you will die in your sin. Let's pause for a moment right there. You will die in your sin. Think about all of the things that Christ did say to people while on earth. Rise, get up. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. And we could go on and on of all the things He said. Can you really think of anything more horrifying, more terrifying than these words right here? You will die in your sin. Those are the last words anyone should ever want to hear. You will die in your sin. You can live in your sin, but be like that thief on the cross who did not die in his sin, but was rescued at the last moment and received the words that we should all want to hear. Today you will be with me in paradise. But he says to these religious leaders, you will die in your sin. Now, notice he then says, where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, hang on now, Lord. Um, we're a bit concerned about you telling us we're going to die in our sin. Notice they don't do that. You would think they would do that. He says, you're going to die in your sin. What do they do? They just go on to something else. Will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? They focus on something else that he said rather than on something more important about where they are going to go if they die in their sin. That's what people do. 
They avoid dealing with matters of life and death. People in darkness don't want to deal with their sin. Here they are, not dealing with their sin. I'm sorry, but if you say to me, you're going to die in your sin, I'd like to say, okay, hang on now. Let's slow down right now. Where I'm going, you cannot come? Oh yeah, let's focus on that. Where is he going? And he tells them, well, you're from below and I am from above. Now, they don't understand. You see this in verse 27 that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. They are in darkness. They don't see. It's an awful thing to be in darkness, but trying to see. It's fine to be in darkness when, let's say, you're sleeping. I am a big fan of that. The other night, it wasn't last night, it was the night before. I get into bed, I want to have a nice sleep. Barb wants to read. She's got a special little light she's bought because the other light she had was too bright. So she's bought a little light to go on her book. But she's so sweet, you know. You know what she did the other day? She did what I used to do when I went on road trips with uh, guys and we had to share a, a double bed. You put pillows down the middle. That's one thing you always do. I don't know why, but it's just a, it's an unwritten rule. You put pillows down the middle. Well, she put a pillow up to block out the light. And I thought, that's very nice. I still knew the light was on and couldn't sleep, but she was making an effort. Little light, pillow, but I just, I know she's reading. I hear the page turning. It's just, just that's as bad as my marriage gets. I like light when I'm sleeping. I don't like, I, I, I like darkness when I'm sleeping. Other than that, I don't like darkness. I was in South Africa for two weeks, and guess what? They have power outages, but these aren't power outages like in, in Canada where it's kind of cool, like, oh, what happened? Oh, power's gone out. Ah, oh, do we back up in an hour or so? No, this is, oh, let's look at the schedule today. Uh, from lunchtime to 4 p.m., no power. Oh, from 4 till 8, no power. Oh, 8 to 12, no power. 12 hours of no power. And it's all fine and dandy when the sun is shining, but when the sun goes and all of a sudden it's black, it's darkness. And you're in South Africa. Not Port Alberni. The worst thing you've got to worry about is the smell. No, you're in Africa. I don't like darkness. And you're hovering around the house trying to find a candle. And you see a candle and all of a sudden the candle brings light and you go, ah, that's better. Darkness isn't fun. You can't see. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what's happening. And here are these religious leaders who think they can see don't have a clue. They don't know what's happening. They are blind. They are in darkness. And Jesus then says to them in verse 28, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. Now if you've got a pen, I'd like you to do a period right there at I am He. If you're into that, to facing your Bible sort of thing. Why? Because if you miss the I am He as the greatest and grandest statement that God makes in the Old Testament that Jesus is appropriating to Himself here in this context, you're going to miss out on the glory of what's being said here. He is saying, when you lift Me up, and that language going back to chapter 3 is speaking about His crucifixion on the cross. When you lift up the eternal Son of God on the cross, you will know that that is God. That I am He. Period. And that I do nothing on my own authority. I don't even go to the cross on my own authority. 
but speak just as the Father has taught me. Now, I want you to also see something very important in verse 29. He's just spoken about the fact that He is going to be lifted up on the cross. And in verse 29, because there's no verse 29 when He said this, and He who sent me is with me. Think about the power of those words to Christ Himself. He's just said, I'm going to be lifted up on the cross, but He who sent me is with me. These words are precious words. These words might be words that save you in the end because in life you're going to realize very quickly, sooner or later, that you can't always count on people, that friends can be fickle, that family can be, can be very fickle. Christ saw this with His disciples. They were fickle. You look at it in sports, how fans are fickle. My team that I support last year was unbelievable. Three finals, two trophies, almost won the Premier League on the final day. A few months later, and fans are now calling for the head of the coach. We want him out. He needs to be gone. People are crazy. They are fickle. And you can't depend upon them. You can't even depend upon yourself. Let's be honest. We don't even treat ourselves well. <laughs> but Jesus is able to say, and He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. That's a promise that you can actually appropriate to yourself as well. He is with me. He has not left me alone. For, this is why He hasn't left me alone. I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Always. Everything that Jesus does is a fragrant aroma in the nostrils of God rising up to heaven. This is My Son whom I love. I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. So Jesus is just engaged in an extensive debate with religious leaders in public and here's the fruit of it. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Many were persuaded. Now what can we say by way of application? I want to just point out a few things. The first is this. Why is it, why is it that no one ever spoke like this man? Going back to chapter 7. Why is it that they said no one ever spoke like this man? And the answer is very simple. Because nobody can ever speak like this man. Nobody else can say the things that Christ says. No one can make the claims that Christ makes. Nobody has the authority or the ability to be able to say the things He said. That's why nobody ever spoke like this man. But you see, there's something... How shall I put this? There's something we need to be honest with about Christ if we're going to make any progress in the Christian life. Stephen Hawking, that famous scientist from Oxford, said that Christianity and religion is a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the darkness. And John Lennox, a British philosopher Christian from Oxford, uh, responded, I don't know how many years later, and said, atheism is a fairy tale for those who are afraid of the dark, of the light. For those who are afraid of the light, atheism is your best bet. So you got some saying people are afraid of the dark, others saying people are afraid of the light. What are we to make of all this? 
Do we say, well, Christianity is for those who love the light? Not quite. It doesn't go like that. Something that you need to understand and reckon with right now before Christ is that you are not only afraid of the darkness, you actually still to some extent love the darkness. You still relish at times the darkness. You still love your sin. It clings to you and you love it. Don't act as though it's any different that you are completely free from the darkness. The darkness is always trying to clutch you. As you walk out those doors, it's trying to pull you back in. And guess what? Like Lot's wife, what do you do? You turn back and you look and you enjoy it. Because you actually don't fully love the light. When you come into the light, you're exposed. I remember once in South Africa and I was young and I was out with a parent's friend's daughter and I remember standing somewhere and I looked at her and I was like, you know what? I thought, I can really see your skin's blemishes right now. We are in this light. And you know what she said to me? I didn't say that out loud. That's not a very nice thing to say. She actually said to me, oh, let's get out of this light. It's quite bright. She must have been looking at me going, wow, I can really see his blemishes. We're looking at each other and going, wow. The light's not making us look good. Guess what? When you come into the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, you are not going to look good. Because you still love the darkness. You still cling to the darkness. You still enjoy the darkness. You still make excuses for the darkness. So yeah, it might sound nice on social media. Christians love the light and have been saved from the darkness. But don't fool yourself. You still love the darkness. And you still somewhat can't handle the true light of being in the presence of God. But you really have no choice. Because the light will win. And when you belong to Christ you realize that you can receive what only He can offer. What does He say in verse 12? I am the light of the world. I want you to understand something very important about salvation. Whatever is true of Christ will become true of you. So if He says, I'm the light of the world, what will that mean for you? Does that mean you're the light of the world? Yes. He says in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. So let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus glorified His Father by always doing the things that were pleasing to Him. We are the light of the world. And we are to glorify God. What else does Jesus say about Himself? He says, I am from above and to these religious leaders, you are from below. Does that become true of us? Of course. What does he say to Nicodemus in chapter 3? Unless you are born from above. Anophen. It's not just born again. It's born from above. Unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You will be in darkness. You must be born from above. You must be like Christ from above. You must shine like Christ. And notice Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. Paul says to the Corinthians, we always make it our aim to what? Please God. 
So we receive from Christ what only He can give us. What do we give to Christ then? That's the question. When you become a Christian, what do you offer Christ? You offer Christ what you can only offer Him. And what was that? What did you hand over to Christ? Darkness. That's all you offered. There's a phrase attributed to Jonathan Edwards. I haven't been able to find it, so I'm not going to say Jonathan Edwards said this, but it's attributed to him. If you say things enough times and people at conferences say it enough times, it just becomes entrenched. I don't know, but I'm going to say the truth is still there. That the only thing you contributed to your salvation was the sin that made it necessary. You offered Christ what only you can offer, and that was darkness. So in Luke chapter 23, verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, and what? There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three hours of darkness that we are told in Exodus was a darkness that was felt. And when that darkness came over the entire land and there was darkness, those were your sins coming upon the Savior. The darkness of your life, the things you don't want to be exposed, they were imputed to Him. They were credited to Him. And it was those sins in darkness whereby Christ, who always did the things pleasing to the Father, could cry out and say, why have you forsaken Me? And the answer was right there for everybody to see, or shall we say, not see. Because there was darkness everywhere. What do you offer Christ when you come to know Him? You offer Him what all you can give Him. Darkness. And what does He offer you? Light. He offers you life. He offers you life from above. And a life that will reflect through your life if He is living in you. Be honest and say, yes, I'm afraid of the light. But don't let that keep you from coming closer so that you may see that far from actually hurting you, coming into the light is the only thing that can help you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your words and ask that we would not be afraid of the light, that we would actually be horrified of the darkness, that we would revolt from it, do our very best in the power of Christ to know that while the light does expose, we who have been forgiven need not fear the exposure. For we are clothed now, not in ourselves, but in the One who did all the things that were pleasing to the Father. We ask that we will remember this as we live our lives as light in this world. Amen.